The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan program. I'm your host, Victoria Moran. I think we had some technical difficulties to start the day, but you know, those difficulties are small. But we hear a lot about other difficulties, about how people are so separated, even though there's a lot more that draws us together. So if you think about it, every culture has a cuisine. Everybody has sports and games and music. And just about everybody has figured out that humans have a best friend, and that would be the dog. So it is to the dog that we are dedicating today's program. After the break, we'll be talking with young entrepreneur Amanda Rolat, who has come up with a fresh vegan dog food, hot off the presses just about. And right now, we are going to be talking with someone who, if indeed the dog is human's best friend, well, he just might be the dog's best friend and a really good friend of other companion animals, too. And that is Dr. Ernie Ward. He's the Wild Earth Chief Veterinary Officer, and he spent his entire career practicing and writing about and encouraging better care for animals. He's earned the title of America's Pet Advocate, and he is so passionate about proper nutrition that he founded the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, and he wrote the book Chow Hounds, Why Our Dogs Are Getting Fatter. He was resident veterinarian for the Rachel Ray Show for many years, and some of you may also know him as the vet who locked himself in a hot car to prove how dangerous that is for any companion animal. Welcome, Dr. Ernie Ward. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you. So... The scientific consensus now is what? Can dogs be vegan or maybe not? Well, you know, this is one of the things we struggle with is the terminology that we use. So veganism typically refers to an ideology, not a diet or nutritional approach. And so when when I say vegan, I I think most of our audience probably knows what we're talking about. But for the the rest of the world, we we tend to think in terms of plant-based proteins and nutrition. And that's that's really where I want to focus because, as we all know, um, veganism can have a polarizing effect on different people. It can be taken out of context. It can be used against 
against us. But for us, we are trying to promote plant-based proteins as a way to eliminate using animals and killing animals for, for food. What a great idea. But I know people who would say, no, no, no. It's <laughs> right. bad enough that you do it. You're not going to try to change my dog. Right. And, and for those people, honestly, Victoria, we, we, we say, OK, you know, that's fine. What we are trying to do are offer solutions for people that are interested in either helping save the environment. I mean, we've got like 12 years, according to all of the chief scientists around the globe, to get this thing right. Or we are beyond salvation. If people are concerned about animal welfare, we have a solution. If people are worried about nutrition and some of the dangers of, of many of these you know, commercial animal based pet foods, we've got that solution. So I, I would say to you, you know, first of all, we're not trying to change change dogs to veganism, what we're trying to do is offer an alternative for people who think that pet food is part of a bigger problem. Yeah. So I have heard that dogs are extremely successful omnivores who eat like carnivores. What's the real physiology of yeah. the dog in terms of what they were designed to eat? And, you know, we'll have to come back. I've just completed a book that is scheduled for a fall publication in which we really devote nearly a third of the book to this exact topic of what exactly is a dog? Are they carnivores? Are they omnivores? Are they something in between? And the reality is they are omnivorous. They are omnivores, just like humans. Now, cats are slightly different, but we started to attach these weird descriptors and terms and adjectives to omnivores. In fact, you've probably heard of, of, of dogs being referred to as facultative carnivores, which is really a nonsensical term. It means that, well, sometimes they can eat meat, but sometimes they don't have to have meat, which sounds like an omnivore to me. So dogs are clearly, scientifically, there's no debate they are omnivores, which means that they can get their protein sources from nearly anywhere. But but I would, I would argue, and one of the things I make a really big point in our book to describe is that that is dated language. Like, honestly, thinking of things in terms of omnivore and carnivore is based on 1800s science. It's based on taxonomical, anatomical differences. And so we've really progressed beyond that. And where, where I try to focus is what is what are the nutrient requirements of different species, including humans and cats and dogs? And so we have to start thinking beyond ingredients and toward nutrients because nutrients are how our bodies see food. So if we're going to actually pursue better health, and things that are better for the planet, well, then we're going to have to look at nutrients, not ingredients. So when I think about that, I remember one of the most life-changing things I ever saw hanging on a wall was in a veterinarian's office where it talked about the nutrient breakdown of the various mammals' milks. I was not vegan at that time. But when I saw the difference in, in milk for human babies versus milk for whale babies, it literally changed everything. So I feel like that's something that you and the people at Wild Earth are doing for dogs. So tell us about that. Tell us about these treats. Of course, I already know about the right. treats because my right. dog Forbes is crazy about them. But there's an ingredient in there that seems to make my very carnivorous dog extremely happy. What are you guys working with? <laughs> well, again, getting away from the terms carnivore and omnivore, it's all about taste and nutrition. And you're right. And so one of the things that we started looking at, you know, a couple of years ago were what are the alternative protein sources beyond peas and lentils? What, what are beyond plants? And we quickly uh, arrived at, at fungi. And fungi and yeast, of course, have been around with us as long as we've been around. But more importantly, they've been used as a food source for humans for 
thousands and thousands of years. In fact, the Japanese have elevated it to a culinary art form, and, and koji has become one of their treasured you know, delicacies. And if you're not familiar with koji, you probably are. If you've ever had soy sauce, if you've ever had miso, if you've ever enjoyed a little sake, all of that includes koji, which is just a fungus called Aspergillus orizae. And somewhere between six and 9,000 years ago, uh, a very fortunate Japanese rice farmer stumbled upon this. And really, the story goes like this. They had some rice that was out for drying, and apparently it was a humid season. And they woke up one morning to find what they call a white frost, which is actually what koji means. So all over their rice that's stored, they found this white frost. Well, they were worried that their crop was ruined. They would be out of business or <laughs> poor or broke or whatever. But this fortunate farmer tried it and he realized it enhanced the flavor. And that is the beginning of us discovering this. But what people have used Koji for historically as to is to make things taste good, which is why your dog, like so many others, love it. But we said, what about proteins? What is contained in this? Because we knew from other research with yeast and fungal proteins that they had a pretty pretty impressive protein profile. And we said, I wonder if Aspergillus orizae has the same. And luckily for us and luckily for dogs everywhere, Aspergillus orizae has the same 10 essential proteins, amino acids that dogs require. And that's one of those serendipitous, fortunate accidents. You know, I call it the happy accident of Koji, but that's where we started to begin. And, and of course, now we have a dog food that's coming out in the fall. And we're really, really excited because we've been exploring other fungi, other yeast, and we've been finding some quite remarkable findings with, with regard to their amino acid profiles. This is absolutely brilliant because sometimes people say, well, a fungus, it's not exactly an animal. It's not exactly a plant. Well, yes, for somebody like a dog, that's not exactly a carnivore. Right. How brilliant is, is all of that? Let me ask you, though, about special needs dogs, because I know we're just beginning to have wonderful dog foods coming out into the world um, for vegan dogs. But if a, we haven't been around long enough for there to be specialty food. So my little guy, for instance, is part schnauzer. He's prone to pancreatitis. What's your thought on vegan foods for somebody who has some dietary uh, adjusting to do? Right, and even the fact that dogs get pancreatitis, remember that pancreatitis is typically caused by an elevation in two enzymes. Lipase is the primary one, and amylase. Amylase is the enzyme responsible for digesting starches. So all those people that say, my dog is a wolf and can't digest char starches, well, I guess they've never heard of pancreatitis. So again, you know, when we look at these special needs dogs, we, we have quickly realized that our foods and, and others that are coming out like this are going to be great for dogs with food intolerances that have food hypersensitivities. And so dogs that have digestive issues, we know from our early research that it's quite beneficial. One of the things I'm super excited about as a veterinarian and someone who you know lives in this world of, of trying to combat pet obesity and, and help with uh, nutrition is the fact that we're adding different fibers better fibers for dogs. And fibers really are one of those unlocked, you know, secrets that we don't talk about enough. And everybody probably listening today says, you know, their doctor at some point has said, you need to eat more fiber, right? But the reality is we haven't quite turned that lens on dogs yet. And we are just in the early stages. But I can tell you some of the stuff, some of the research that we'll be publishing toward the end of this year. Wow, it's amazing. And I'll tell you, I am so excited that we are at that forefront of this emerging nutritional technology and really trying to identify how can we improve the well-being, digestive you know, aspects, special needs dogs like you're referring to by changing the fiber profiles. It's, it's just quite fascinating. 
I love it. I'm so glad you're in this work. God bless you. So, so talk some more about the protein in koji. I know we're hearing in, in the plant-based meats for humans, we've kind of gone right. from a lot of gluten and then to soy, and now pea is a big deal. But right. koji is a whole new thing. Right. And again, these are fungal and yeast-based proteins. And in the book, of course, we go, uh, the, the last third of the book, it really is describing all of these future foods that are coming online for human foods, but also, you know, we are starting to adapt and work and collaborate with other companies to bring them to pet foods as well, including, you know, our, our very famous uh, cell-based mouse meat that we <laughs> debuted a year and a half or so ago for cats. So some really exciting science that we're just on the cusp of, of about to, to make some announcements. But getting back to, to how does code you know, I think that that, you know, I use the term ingredient bias. And I think that many times listeners instantly have this this reaction when you say fungal or yeast or bacterial proteins or cellular agriculture. You go, ooh, ick. You know, there's this gross factor. And we really have to accept that, A, about a billion people today ate koji. They ate a fungal protein and they're in Asia primarily, but you know, throughout that entire region, you know, these fungal proteins have been accepted for thousands of years. So our ingredient bias is different than other parts of the world. So we have to kind of get beyond that. The second thing we have to realize is that a, we've got to figure out a way to have better sustainable food sources. I mean, mm -hmm. we just, we're out of time. And, and, and so the environmental pressure is real. I mean, this climate change, you know, I, I get frustrated when I hear people say, oh, it's not man-made or whatever. It's like, are you not paying attention to the science of the past 40 years? I mean, this is, there's no more debate. It's now just, can we fix it before we ruin the future for my children and perhaps their children moving forward? And animal welfare. I mean, 99.5% of all of the animals farmed in the United States are for food. I mean, this is this is outrageous, you know, and there's immeasurable suffering going on. So we have to figure out better ways. And so fungal, yeast, bacterial, cell agriculture, all of this stuff, these foods based on the nutrition are better. They're safer and they're more sustainable. So we've got to start to get over this ingredient bias and say, look, we need better foods now. And this is why you're seeing this amazing interest in things like Beyond Meat, you know, an Impossible Burger. I am just so overjoyed with seeing the response. The stock market has gone crazy for Beyond <laughs> Meat, you know, yeah. and that just tells me that people are starting to understand that we've got to get this right. Now, we are trying to make dog foods that are delicious that are highly nutritious and safe. Now, you and I know that we're also doing it because we don't want another animal to suffer or die to be fed to a dog or a cat. I mean, that to me as a veterinarian, I took an oath to eliminate animal suffering. And, and so this is a problem. So I, we want to do that. But at the end of the day, what people also want to see is a dog food that their dog enjoys, that their, their dog just goes nuts for. And that's why we have been very careful to select things like Koji. Like you mentioned, your dog goes crazy for it, just like my dogs and thousands of others who have tried it. And we're trying to say, how can we make this food the best it can be? Oh, I'm so excited about this because until fairly recently, even though I've been in this movement for decades, I didn't realize how much animal food companion animals in the U.S. alone consume. It's staggering. It's ridiculous. In fact, the latest estimates are that about 25% of all of the animal meat consumed in the United States is consumed by dogs and cats. 
25%. And so now no longer can I, and, and and really these are the things that made me, you know, this is why a wild earth exists because when you start to realize that the dogs and cats that I love and commit my life to serve are a major contributor to environmental climate change, you know, to animal suffering and, and, you know, all of the problems associated with meat production, factory farming, I said, enough. We have, this is, I can't turn a blind eye. And I think that so many, you know, vegans and vegetarians, you know, in the book, I describe it as ethical feeding friction. So they, they feel uncomfortable. They know that, that they shouldn't be feeding that animal based protein dog or cat food. Right. But they don't have a solution. They don't know if it's even safe or if they can do this, you know, can you make your dog quote unquote plant-based or vegan? And the answer is yes. And now we're just coming to market with solutions. And, and that's where it's really, you know, I, I don't, I don't in any way judge people who didn't get on the the plant-based diet train for dogs, you know, years and years ago. I, I don't blame them at all because unless you're a veterinarian or really, really, you know, involved in the movement, you probably said, I, I don't know what to do. But next year, you will not have a choice anymore. Amen to that. That's so great. So for what we've got right now this year, if somebody has a dog who is reluctant to eat healthier foods, what can humans do to help out with that? Well, I, th I think that this is where we have to decide what's best for each pet. And, and so I am not out on a crusade to try to change every dog into a plant-based dog. I am here to offer a solution for those that it is appropriate for. And, and this is, a, again, you know, some people say, well, Ernie, that's a sellout. You know, you've got to be harder. I'm just trying to begin a dialogue that reaches more people. You know, and honestly, I'm so, you know, appreciative of some of our contacts with the Beyond Meat folks in particular. I think they've done a great job of softening the landscape for us. You know, they've made this conversation start in a real meaningful way. But for today, Today, I think there's two things you should do. Number one, there are already some fantastic plant-based diets out there, right? I mean, our food isn't on the market yet and it won't be available until the fall. So today you should start to experiment. And even if you only fed your dog a plant-based diet one or two days a week, you're starting to make a difference. You're starting to reduce the amount of animals that are slaughtered and suffer to fill your dog's bowl. And look, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be harsh, but you know, this is a reality that people sometimes just turn off and they don't want to think about what's going into that bag or can of dog or cat food, but there's a lot of suffering and it's a dilemma. So I would say to you, look at some of the current diets. They're complete and balanced. They've gone through all the AFCO testing that are, is required and they're doing a great job. In fact, I think you're going to have a guest on who's part of this solution. So maybe just dip your toe into it, do it once or twice a week. You know, I think that as you start to learn and experience and you see that, wow, my dog didn't, you know, grow uh, leaves out of its head. <laughs> you know? So you're going to say, wow, I think this is good. What you'll probably see is most of the plant-based diets, um, some of the better ones have a little bit higher fiber. Now, our, our food has really got some amazing fiber benefits that, again, because we're doing something that people haven't done previously. But I think you'll also see some improvements in stool quality. And, and that's one of the first things that people remark about. They go, wow, the stool is starting to firm up. The stool is becoming a little more regular. And, and those are, are just, again, me metrics, benchmarks that you can look for at home. But you'll, you will be surprised, I think, in the long term of, of how your dog will A, enjoy the food and B, potentially benefit. That's so exciting. So Dr. Ernie, talk to me about 
your professional colleagues. You said you took an oath to eliminate animal suffering, as did every veterinarian. I'm working with a filmmaker now. I've produced his beautiful film, A Prayer for Compassion, which is to interest people who are religious or spiritual in looking at a vegan ethic. And and, uh, a wonderful woman who's part of that, who's an Israeli veterinarian, is urging him to make his next film be called Don't Eat Your Patients (laughs) about veterinarians. So just help us understand how somebody can dedicate a life to saving animals but still eat animals. Well, it's called compartmentalization. And there's a bit of speciesism that occurs in our society, and it varies around the globe. So we favor certain animal species in certain parts of the world. So in our part of the world, the dog is man's best friend, cat is a close second, and everything else is really a distant third through one millionth, right? So we we really don't even care if there are, are animals going extinct. You know, just this week, we had a big scientific paper that dropped. Uh, World Health Organization says a million animals are going extinct, you know, now in the next couple of years. And and people just are like, eh, you know, they feel powerless, but they don't have that emotional connection. So I think that veterinarians, first and foremost, they say, I love dogs and cats and maybe small mammals, maybe horses. But, you know, the other part is just not something I'm going to concern myself with. And I don't, I don't judge people for this. I think that it's a level of enlightenment that they have to sort of get to. I became, you know, veterinary, a vegetarian long before I was in vet school because I just didn't feel right. You know, like many people that have been in this for a long time, you know, when I left home and was able to make my own food decisions, that was the first thing I decided was why the heck am I eating animals? Because I love them so much. Um, but we do need as a profession, we need to take this a lot more seriously. And I think that by and large, what I am trying to do, not only with this book, but, uh, you know, just with my lecturing and, and other types of, of you know, outreach is we're just trying to say, look, veterinarians, we can't just be specious. We can't just say, I'm really concerned about animal welfare for dogs and cats and forget the suffering of chickens, of pigs, of cattle, of salmon. You know, I mean, all of these farmed animals are suffering immeasurably. And I, I, I think that most of the time it's just this, I don't know what to do about it. And now we're starting to say there are solutions. It's time for us to wake up as a profession. And look, I applaud my um, colleagues who are in the meat industry, the animal meat industry, if they are trying to make things better. You know, and, and again, there's incremental change. Um, I don't support what they do, but I appreciate if they're trying to make things better. What I think is, is it's so cost driven I mean, it's ridiculous. By the time you add in the U.S. farm subsidies and all of the different government handouts that go, it is still cheaper to grow a chicken than it is to grow soybeans. And and we ha- again, as a society, we have to start to say, why is this? Why are we allowing this? You know, I, I think there's a lot of issues, but all I'm calling on is my my veterinary colleagues to say, look, if you took an oath to take care of all animals and eliminate suffering, that includes the cows, the pigs, the chickens and the fish. Amen to that. Well, I can hardly wait for your new book, but let me ask you in our last few minutes about your earlier book, um, Chowhounds, Why Our Dogs Are Getting Fatter. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, my father, before he passed uh, a few years ago, he he knew my two big passions, especially as I became a little more advanced in my career, were uh, around uh, pet obesity and around, of course, 
animal proteins and, and trying to find alternatives. And he was like, wow, Ernie, you know, you just pick the two toughest, most impossible battles you could imagine to fight. And, and I guess that's a little bit of just my nature, but pet obesity was something that, you know, I, I founded the association for pet obesity prevention in 2005. And it was because I was, I was already on this journey of health for myself. You know, I was a longtime Ironman athlete, you know, I was very much, you know, vegan and I was doing all these things, you know, without eating animals. And so I, I knew the benefits of good nutrition, but I was also also witnessing my pet patients getting larger and I was diagnosing more with obesity. And so I was talking to my friends during on the lecture circuit and, and literally one of my very dear friends, um, who's a surgeon at university of Georgia, Dr. Steve Budsberg one night at dinner just said, Ernie enough with this pet obesity talk. Why don't you go do something about it? And that was the start of the association. And of course we're the group that every year we publish the data on the percentage of dogs and cats that are diagnosed with obesity or overweight. And, and that led me to write a book called chow hounds and do a lot of work with a lot of food companies trying to change our approach, our dietary and nutritional therapeutic approaches to this. But the reality is, you know, pet obesity is the single biggest threat that our face, our pets face today. And, and that is a, it's really a problem of abundance. And as people have pushed harder and harder for these ultra high protein, animal protein diets, these raw meats, all this stuff, we're just adding more calories and they're still just as sedentary. And then we, you add genetic influences, hormonal imbalances, you have environmental influences like B, you know, BHA. I mean, you've got all B, BPA, I'm sorry, and BHT that are linked with lots of diseases. So now you're starting to say, wow, what is going on here? We at Wild Earth are doing a lot of research uh, with the microbiome because we think that that's also part of the solution. So again, you know, pet obesity is my real passion. It's how I got into the world of nutrition uh, more directly and, and developed expertise there. And now, of course, you know, I'm able to continue my mission that I started you know, over 30 years ago. And that is how can we eliminate the slaughter of animals to feed our pets? Absolutely. So just in terms of diseases that result from pet obesity, give me three. Yeah, yeah. It's diabetes. It's osteoarthritis, it's high blood pressure, it's many forms of cancer, it's heart disease, respiratory disease. I mean, how much time do we have? You, you know, there are so many weight-related disorders because remember that obesity in the medical realm, we aren't talking about how big you are. We're not talking about how quote unquote fat you are. We're talking about a metabolic disruption. The way your body handles fat, the way the hormones influence metabolism. See, that is why it is a disease, but too often, sadly, I think most Americans still view it as just a size problem and medical practitioners that are awake to this issue, they go, no, this is not about size. This is about metabolic dysregulation. Well, you are awake to lots and lots. I'm so happy that we've had this time together. I absolutely want to get you back on as soon as the new book is out. We will put all of Dr. Ward's URLs and social media on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Find him right now on Twitter, Dr. Ernie Ward, or Wild Earth Pets, or Wild Earth Pets on Facebook. Thanks so much for coming on the program today, and let's just make all those dogs plant-based. Oh, thank you for all you're doing to help. You're, you're doing such an amazing job. Thank you. Bless you. Take good care. Everybody else stay with us. We got more dog food after the break. Thanks for joining us. 
This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. This programming is made possible through the generous donations of listeners like you. If you feel inspired by this programming, we invite you to contribute. Go to UnityOnlineRadio.org and click on Donate to make your offering today. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Teachable Moment with Rev. Ogan Holder, taken from a talk at Unity on the River in Amesbury, Massachusetts. Vulnerability is very uncomfortable. But as we know from so many teachings by so many people and from our own experience, the only way we will ever experience true connection is to be vulnerable, to be open. And to say, but what we say to ourselves, but when we're vulnerable, we risk being hurt. Well, you only risk being hurt, again, if you don't get a full understanding of how love works. Nothing and no one can hurt you. Nothing and no one is against you. And everything that happens in your life, as I always say, and I will always say, so if I keep saying it and you keep hearing it and you get tired of me hearing it, I apologize. But everything happens in our life as an opportunity for us to show up as God. To find a Unity Church near you, visit unity.org. Get your copy of Unity Magazine this month and deepen your spiritual journey. Pastor Nadia Boltz Weber talks about the need to make a holy shift. Carolyn Mace gets gutsy with God. Justine Willis-Toms dives into new dimensions, and Alberto Violdo shares an excerpt from his new book, Heart of the Shaman. Subscribe for one year and save $5 off the cover price and get the digital edition free. Go to unitymagazine.org and get a free trial issue today. Did you know Unity has published a new book by Eric Butterworth? This wonderful writer and teacher, who is loved by so many people, left a recorded class called Practical Metaphysics that has now been turned into a book. It's Vintage Butterworth. He explains how to live from a deeper state of consciousness and awaken to health, love, prosperity, and peace of mind. Practical Metaphysics. Find it online by going to unity.org and click shop. Discover the wisdom of Charles Fillmore and other legendary Unity teachers with Rev. Bob Brock and Unity Classic Radio. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Central, Bob shares original radio transcripts from the Unity archives with truth students worldwide. Explore these timeless teachings and learn how to apply them to your life today. Listen live or on demand. You can also connect with Rev. Bob on his Unity in Action Facebook page. Tune in every Tuesday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. It is wonderful to have you listening today. You know what? If you live with a dog or a cat or a bird or somebody else who uh, isn't human, 
why don't you send me a picture? You can join the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And let's just blanket that group with lots of pictures of our companion animals because they just make life so much more filled with love. I also invite you to check out my various goings-on at MainStreetVegan.net. You can subscribe to our mailings and get yourself an e-guide called Three Steps to Rockin' a Vegan Lifestyle. And I also invite you to check out this week's blog post, which I wrote, and it's called What I Learned About Love from Reality TV. This piece was inspired by an episode of Queer Eye. So, you know... You can get inspired everywhere. And I did mention the film or Prayer for Compassion in the previous segment. But if you go to the website, MainStreetVegan.net, you can see where a Prayer for Compassion is going to be screened. So there are screenings coming up on Long Island, Tallahassee, Florida, London, San Francisco, lots of other places. And if you would like to host a screening in your city or your town, please be in touch. And that can happen, too. Now, continuing on with this wonderful canine topic, I am honored to introduce to you somebody else who is going to be changing the world for animals, and she is Amanda Rolot. She is an attorney who's held senior positions at the Center for Appellate Litigation and Law Offices of Joel B. Rudin. She is a longtime animal rescuer and advocate, and she's also passionate about health and wellness, particularly the causal link between food and degenerative disease. And that's why she started Tails Up which began in her very own kitchen because she believes that food is the best preventive medicine for humans and dogs. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you on the program today. I know you're traveling. I know we got you out there in the Midwest in Chicago, even though you are a New Yorker like me. So, Amanda, what's your history? How did you get into the vegan dog food business? So it really started in my own kitchen, actually. Um, I'd made, you know, over the years, a number of changes to my diet. And for me, it was driven mostly by animal welfare concerns. I started cutting meat and animal products out of my diet. Um, And then, you know, the further along I went, I sort of, you know, to me, the health um, concerns that were abated by that are really undeniable. And I started to notice you know, just changes in my weight and my skin, and I started to become just much more informed about, um, and I'm, a, you know, just a big believer in diet is really a curative and preventative medicine. I mean, I've seen so many people manage Crohn's and diabetes and, um, you know, heart disease through diet, and so I'm just a very big believer and advocate um, that what we eat is central to our health and well-being. And then, of course, the environmental impacts are undeniable, and this is such a critical time um, for climate change and the effect of, you know, the animal um, and raising animals for food on the environment. So I had really just become a student of all of this for so many years, and I became very passionate and just a very, you know, I, I very much believed in the diet and the way in which I was eating and living my life. And one day um, I was, you know, just 
pouring food in a bowl of kibble for my dog. And it suddenly hit me that everything, all of these adjustments that I had made in my own diet and my own life and everything that I believed so strongly, you know, especially about um, animal welfare, but also about the health concerns associated with where we're getting our food and what kind of food. I just had never even thought to apply those to, you know, my, my own dogs and my own animals. And it made me very uncomfortable um, to be feeding my dogs, you know, these other sentient beings. And it also suddenly occurred to me that, you know, I really do believe that um, especially processed meat, especially meat from the um, industrial animal industry is really, you know, full of antibiotics and growth hormones and contaminants that are making us sick or making people sick. And, you know, most people are not sourcing, you know, even people who are not vegan are not, are not sourcing high quality um, animal protein. Um, you know, I, I have my own concerns about animal welfare even related to that, but it very much concerned me that my concerns related to what animal protein um, people are eating and then especially what animal protein, you know, is of the lowest quality that we're feeding our dogs. Um, I started to wonder whether the same things that we're seeing in dogs, kidney failure, higher cancer rates, and obesity in pets, I started to wonder if this was just as related to the kind of food, you know, as it is to humans. So I, you know, I'm not a vet, obviously, and and really had no idea. I have, I think, like many people do and did, had a very carnivorous image of a dog in my mind, and I think that we are you know, through clever marketing led to believe that about dogs. So I really didn't know if a dog could, you know, handle a plant-based diet, let alone thrive on a plant-based diet. So I started doing some research and I reached out to um, a vet nutritionist just to see and answer some questions. And I learned that dogs are omnivores and that they absolutely can handle a plant-based diet. Um, they have protein and amino acid requirements and can break down that protein and get their amino acids from plant sources much in the same way that we as humans can. So then I started thinking, what do I actually want to feed my dogs? And I really wanted to feed them a fresh food, at least in part. And so I hired this nutritionist to formulate a recipe. And, you know, it really, we have formulated something that looks, feels, and tastes just like meat. Um, if people are familiar, and I think a lot of people now are with Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger, it's that sort of meaty texture. Um, it's, it's that kind of product. And, um, you know, it's mixed with fresh fruits and fresh fresh vegetables that are just gently cooked. And so they retain maximum, you know, the maximum nutrients that they can. Um, and so that's what I really just started cooking for my dogs and putting together in my own kitchen. And I realized, you know, and hope that there are other people out there like me that just have the same concerns about feeding dogs so much meat and um, what kinds of meat we're feeding them and that they don't necessarily need it. And so that's really how I decided to turn it into a business. I'm so excited about Tails Up, about what Dr. Ernie is doing at Wild Earth. I'm just looking at my dog right now and thinking, you're going to be so much healthier and live so much longer because of these amazing people. So just a question. When people go vegan, we're told immediately, you've got to supplement B12. Is that also true for dogs? It is. I mean, there... I. 
dogs absolutely can thrive on a plant-based diet for all of the reasons that humans can. They um, have evolved to be able to break down starches and they can handle and derive their nutrients from plants. But dogs need a very specific amount of amino acids. And that's the same when they're deriving those amino acids from animal protein. It's just that certain animal proteins have higher densities for the dogs of amino acids and of vitamins and nutrients, and B12 is one of them. So one thing that you have to be very careful about, especially with a plant-based diet for pets, is you know a lot of people are just cooking for their pets in their homes, and that's great that's a you know they're, they're well intentioned but it i did learn that it is very important to have the diet especially if plant-based be properly formulated by a canine nutritionist so that they are getting the right amounts of the vitamins and nutrients and amino acids and that to any extent that they're not um in the in the formulation that we are supplementing it with the appropriate amount of nutrients. It, it is very important. Um, so one of the things that's interesting, B12 is one that is, um, if they're not getting it in proper amounts, had to be formu- had to be supplemented in. Interestingly about a plant-based diet for pets is that for all of the reasons that it's so good for humans, it's low in fat and high in fiber, this can be a little bit tricky for pets. Um, dogs need quite a high fat content and too much fiber can actually become a weight loss diet for dogs. So it was not necessarily an easy endeavor to formulate a complete and balanced recipe for them, but we did get there, and it's really, really exciting to be able to have a product that looks, feels, and tastes like meat. They love it, um, but that it's complete and balanced and that they can do very well and that it has all of the right amounts of nutrients for them. This is so exciting because my dog does believe that plant-based meat made for humans is animal meat, but I don't like to give him too much of it because it has salt and it has other things that probably humans shouldn't be eating very much of either. And a lot of it's based on soy. And I don't know if it's some kind of wife's tale, but I have heard that soy is not good for dogs. What's your take on that? So... Soy can be an allergen for dogs, but interestingly, soy has gotten such a bad rap in the pet food industry. And I also had this you know, perception of soy being bad for dogs. And again, this was a, a very much a learning process, an educational process for me. I learned that the leading allergens um, in do- the leading allergen causes in dogs are actually beef and dairy, not soy. So a lot of dogs react very well if they're, you know, if they're itchy skin or have any sort of allergic reaction or allergens um, that are ta- from their diet. It's often because of beef or because of dairy. And so transitioning them to a plant-based diet can often clear a lot of those symptoms up. But, you know, there, soy can be, um, can be an allergen for dogs. And so I think that with any diet that you choose to feed your dog, you just have to monitor their reaction. My dogs have done really, really well. Um, overall, soy is overwhelmingly, you know, a, a good ingredient for dogs. It's high in protein. It gives them what they need. Um, but it can be, you know, an allergen for some dogs. So again, if your dog is reacting badly to soy, um, then it's not the right ingredient for them, you know, but I haven't seen that yet. I am waiting for a 
textured pea protein to hit the market next year. There's a company that I've been speaking to um, that is trying to develop much the same as, you know, what I'm using now. Again, I kind of describe it as, you know, beyond for dogs because it's that sort of product. But the two that I'm launching with are soy-based, and I'm waiting for this pea protein-based product to hit the market hopefully in about a year. Um, so I'm hoping that there will be an option for, you know, owners if their dog is actually reacting poorly to soy. Um, but overall, unless the dog, you know, has some sort of allergic reaction to it, I think soy is a great ingredient for dogs. Wonderful. So when I was speaking with Dr. Ernie, he came out with a statistic that absolutely blew me away that something like 25% of all the meat consumed in this country is consumed by dogs and cats. I, I just had images of them driving through drive throughs This this blows me away. What do you know about that? So it's it's a very tough statistic to have to deal with and acknowledge, but it actually, when I heard it, it makes sense because if 68% of the U.S. population, if 68% of U.S. households own pets and we're feeding the majority of those pets, you know, meat in quantities of about two times a day, well, then you see that, you know, the U.S. pet population contributes up to 30% of the meat consumption in this country. And another way of putting that in perspective, um, which is very alarming, is that if the U.S pet population was ranked as its own country for its meat consumption, it would rank number five in the world. Um, it would The U.S., China, Russia, Brazil are the top four countries for its meat consumption, and then number five after that would be the U.S. pet population. Um, they really are consuming a lot of meat and therefore contributing to the environmental impacts of that meat consumption. Some people argue that dogs and cats eat meat that humans cannot consume because we all know that most commercial pet food is made up of um, byproducts of meat that is, you know, unfit for human consumption. And to an extent, so people would then argue that animals cannot be counted um, for their meat consumption because that meat wouldn't have been consumed by humans. To some extent, this is true, um, but there's a great article, um, great study that recently came out in Close One by Gregory Oaken, and it really sort of studied this, and that's really not true. We are learning that animals, the pets, are competing for the same meat, especially when you realize that in the last few years, the sort of premium pet food market has marketed to people on exactly this. They are selling what they claim is higher quality meat, human grade meat. Um, so that puts our pet population increasingly in direct competition for that meat. And so the demand for that meat is actually increasing. And so it's a very, it's, it's a very, um, it's a serious issue in my opinion, especially at such a critical time for climate change. We know that reducing our, our meat intake is crucial for that conversation. And when I learned these statistics, I just couldn't even imagine having this conversation without talking about how much meat our pets are consuming. This is really fascinating. It's such important information. I think that one of the reasons perhaps that, that pets are consuming so much more meat than they were probably 10 years ago, if you walk through a pet food store the sign you see everywhere is grain-free, grain-free. 
like grain is the worst thing on earth that a dog can eat. What do you know about that? I really disagree with it. I mean, again, what's, what's really interesting is that the pet food industry trends after the human food industry, whether it's better for the pets or not. A lot of these diets are really not better for the pets, but what you're seeing is that the trends in the human food industry, so paleo, really high protein, you know, grain-free, these are all um, transitioning over to pets because especially millennials, which are now the, they've surpassed the boomer, baby boomers as the largest pet-owning population, um, they're the humanization of pets. A lot of millennials are putting off having kids of their own and they're treating their pets as their own children. And this is taking on, you know, an accelerated sort of form in the last few years, especially. So you're seeing millennials especially want to feed their pets the way they feed themselves. And so you're seeing these grain-free diets and the demand for really high protein and um, different kinds of protein. You're seeing sort of stranger, you know, kangaroo protein. And that, again, is growing. It's, in my mind, a misguided attempt um, to look for more sustainable meat meat sources. And of course, I think that that's an interesting thing because the most sustainable protein source is a non-meat source. And ironically, you know, the number one trend in the human food industry is a search for for alternative proteins and more plant-based. This is, you know, people are really recognizing that for animal welfare and for the environment and for health, um, you know, people are not necessarily becoming vegan, but definitely looking to incorporate more plants, less meat. And yet, for the pet food industry, where it, you know, really trends after the human food industry in lockstep, this is one area where it's really trending against the human food industry. And I really believe that if we can start having the conversation, it's a really important conversation to have and make people understand that you know these high-protein diets are not necessarily best for pets and that they can thrive on a plant-based diet um, and we can give them something like we've given humans that looks, feels, and tastes like meat and that they, they love, especially pets, because, you know, interestingly, pets, as long as it looks, feels, and tastes like meat and it's better for them and better for the planet, pets even more so don't have any sort of emotional connection to meat like humans do. I mean, it's not as if our dog, you know, gets a promotion and celebrates with a steak dinner afterwards. They have no sort of mental connection that way to meet. So it seems to me such an obvious place to at least start is helping to transition our pets away from meat and, you know, incorporating more plants into their diets. Um, And so I'm hoping that, you know, we can sort of shift this trend in the direction after the human food industry rather than away from it. This is such exciting stuff. Now, I had a dog named Aspen, and back in, oh my goodness, it would have been 1999, uh, I guess, we adopted her. She had major digestive issues. I'd been vegan forever, but at that time, nobody was really talking about vegan dogs. It wasn't even thought about. But because of her digestive issues, the vet took us through all these strange alternative proteins that you're talking about, and then finally said, well, I think your dog is just allergic to meat. And of course, my daughter and I were thrilled because that meant one more vegan in the family. She did beautifully as a vegan, even with what was available then and something that most people weren't doing. Now, my current dog just really 
seems to have this thing that unless it's really meat-like, he's not very interested. So for those of us who do treat our pets like our children, how do we wean the recalcitrant children away from their meaty yearnings before your food is ready, before Dr. Ernie's food is ready? What can we do right now today to get dogs interested in eating more plant foods? So some dogs, I suppose, just won't take to it. Um, maybe mixing in fresh food with the kibble, because in my experience, dogs react very, very well to any kind of fresh food. Um, you know, they. I was very concerned when I started testing my food on the dogs. But the one concern that I had was that, you know, dogs are very scent-driven. And so I was concerned that even though it looks feels and tastes like meat, if it's a soy-based product, a dog might smell something different. I've been extremely lucky in the sense that for some reason there is something about the feeling and the texture and the other food around it. And, um, you know, there's a, I'm sourcing um, a pure algae DHA, um, which has, you know, sort of a, a fishy scent to it. And I think they're taking to it. But all of this is to say that um, if you can sort of adds sense, I think, to the food that dogs would like. So like I just said, you know, um, pure algae omega, you can buy some capsules like that and sort of pour that on the food. And uh, in my experience, dogs go nuts for that. If you just even were to pour a little bit of um, algae omega into a bowl for them, they would, I, I think, just, you know, lick it up and keep licking the bowl. So if anything that you can add to a vegan kibble to just make it, smell and taste better for them and make it more interesting to them, um, you know, before Tails Up and before Wild Earth actually hits the market, I think um, can help transition a dog. But again, it's a process, I think, like it is for a lot of people that, you know, I don't necessarily recommend that people who are interested in plant-based necessarily go vegan overnight. It's a very big transition. And so, you know, more plants, less meat, anything that can help you know, a human or a pet transition, I think, is the right way to go. Oh, yeah. This is so exciting to me. We are doing well at this moment with chickpeas, tofu, potatoes, and broccoli. I know it's not balanced and it's not enough, but those are the vegan foods that he really takes to with the occasional Beyond Chicken strips. And so... Um, yeah, the idea that all these amazing foods are coming makes me personally so excited, not to mention for the decrease in animal suffering and the lessening of the load on the planet. So tell us, Amanda, just about where you are with your business. Lots of people listening have started vegan businesses or they want to start a vegan business. What did you do? How did you get as far as you've gotten? And what can we do to help you get further? Thank you for asking. Um, I really just, I, I have to say, it just started one step at a time, literally the way that it started in my kitchen, and then I turned to the vet nutritionist, and then each step of the way, I just, I reached out to, um, you know, if I needed to write a business plan, I would just find people, and one of the great things about the plant-based community is that it's so mission-driven, and the entrepreneurs in this space, I have found to be extremely encouraging. And so I actually reached out to Andy Levitt at Purple Carrot and I reached out to Ethan Brown at Beyond. And 
I, I never expected to get a response from them when I sort of told them over email that I'm starting this business and, you know, I kind of want to follow in their footsteps and I think it's really important to do the same thing for pets and they've been so encouraging and they've given me advice along the way and that's really helped. So every step of the way, just, um, you know, asking people who have sort of paved the way before me and they're showing me the ropes and helping me through and the Good Food Institute, if people have heard of that, they um, have business analysts and advisors that help people who want to start plant-based businesses and they've reviewed my business plan and made introductions for me and so one of you know to that point where I am right now is I'm going to investors and raising money um, and I hope if I can raise the money on the timeline that I've set that I'll be able to bring the product to market in September um, I completed a Kickstarter and so I'm hoping to kind of get stuff to my early backers at the end of the summer and then launch to the public in September and Good Food Institute's helping me with that right now. And, um, you know, like I said, a lot of the plant-based entrepreneurs are helping me as well. So anyone who's thinking of starting a plant-based business, there's a lot of support and advice and reach out to people and go for it. That is thrilling. When you were talking about the people who were helping you with this, I thought that would be like somebody saying, I'm interested in investing. And Warren Buffett was just telling me. So you've really got <laughs> amazing mentors, as you well deserve. Thank so you. everybody, you can find Tales Up Pets online. That is the website, Tales Up Pets on Instagram. So we'll put everybody's URLs in the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you so much, Amanda Rolat, Tales Up Pets, and Dr. Ernie Ward with Wild Earth. Oh, my goodness. The world is getting more and more exciting, and it's getting kinder and it's starting to make more sense. So thanks to you for being part of that. Thanks to the good folks at Unity Online Radio for hosting this program for just about eight years. If you have an idea for a new lead out for me, I'm going to change my wording at the end. Just be in touch or join that Facebook group, Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners. In the meantime, God bless you. Eat your veggies and feed some to your dog. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.